So there is this phenomenon that happens every day around the world where millions of people gather around televisions and stadiums and even at a schoolyard to watch one thing, to watch other people play a game. And depending on the time of year or even the place in the world that you're living, the game may be different. It could be soccer, baseball, tennis, swimming, lacrosse, cricket, or even for those of us in our culture, yesterday and today, we, we sit and we watch the game of football. People gather to watch other people on a team compete and play a game. And as a kid, I remember my dad always laughing and joking with me because you talk to people and you hear them say, well, yeah, we, we played pretty well today. You know, we scored a lot of points. Our defense really couldn't stop the run very well, though. Maybe you've even said something similar. And my dad, being the funny guy that it is, he would say, oh, did you play? Were you on the field? And I'm like, God, Dad, chill out. People are trying to feel connected to something. It's easy to feel connected and yet never actually step onto the field and play the game. We're kind of designed to be this way, to seek attachment, to, to really want to be in a community of other people with similarities, to feel connected. And you can relate. You're probably laughing a little bit because you had that conversation this morning with somebody talking about yesterday's game, right? It's natural. And you may even do that right now being a part of the local church. You may feel connected enough to be here, to, to come and worship every week. But you really wonder if there's a part for you to play whether it's in this room or another one throughout the city that we live in. Maybe you think all you're really ready to do is sit and take in. Maybe you don't think you're qualified or equipped enough to do any more, to really be a part of the community of the church. And, you know, last week where we left off in Nehemiah 2, Nehemiah had gotten to Jerusalem. He saw how terrible the city was how there were no walls. It was exactly like his brother had told him. He inspects it. And now where we are today, Nehemiah knows that it's time to act. And as we step into this kind of next chapter of the story, I want you to kind of play through that, to have this understanding that everyone has a part to play. As you wait and pray for who your next pastor is going to be, you have a part to play in that. As you show up each week and partake in ministry and lead in ministry, you have a part to play. And as you gather in community, whether you already have a group or today is the day that you will get into a group, you have a part to play. No matter what comes next in the kingdom of God, you have a part to play as his people. And so we're going to do something that, that might be a little stretching for most of you in the room. We're going to read the entire chapter of Nehemiah 3. And I'm just going to prep you right now. If you've never read Nehemiah 3, it's like stupid dry. I'm just going to be honest with you. You ain't ready. Look, y'all ain't ready. So if you want to open to your Bible... If not, it'll also be on the screen. And we're going to begin in verse 1 of chapter 3. And it begins this way. Then Eliashib, the high priest, arose with his brothers, the priests, and built the sheep gate. They consecrated it 
and hung its doors. They consecrated the wall to the Tower of the Hundred and the Tower of Hananel. Next to him, the men of Jericho built, and next to them, Zakur, the son of Emri, built. Now the sons of Hassanah built the fish gate. They laid its beams, hung its doors with its bolts and bars. Next to them, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, the son of Hakaz, made repairs. And next to him, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, the son of Meshzebal, made repairs. Next to him, Zadok, the son of Ba'anah, also made repairs. Moreover, next to him, the Tekoites made repairs, but their nobles did not support the work of their masters. Yoidai, the son of Passiah, and Meshulam, the son of Besodiah, repaired the old gate. They laid its beams, hung its doors with its bolts and its bars. Next to them, Melatiah, the Gibeonite, and Yadon, the Maranathite, the men of Gibeon and of Mizpah, also made repairs for the official seat of the governor of the province beyond the river. Next to him, Uziel, the son of Harhiah, of the goldsmiths, made repairs. And next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers, made repairs, and they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Next to them, Rephiah, the son of Hur, the official of half the district of Jerusalem, made repairs. Next to them, Yediah, the son of Haramap, made repairs opposite his house. And next to him, Hattush, the son of Hashbaniah, made repairs. Malkiah, the son of Harim, and Hashub, the son of Pahath Moab, repaired another section and the Tower of Furnaces. Next to him, Shalom, the son of Halohesh, the official of half the district of Jerusalem, made repairs, he and his daughters. Hanun and the inhabitants of Zenoah repaired the valley gate. They built it and hung its doors with its bolts and its bars and a thousand cubits of the wall to the refuse gate. Malkiah, the son of Rechab, the official of the district of Beth Hakarim, repaired the refuse gate. He built it, hung its doors with its bolts and its bars. Shalom, the son of Kol Jose, the official of the district of Mizpah, repaired the fountain gate. He built it, covered it, hung its doors with its bolts and its bars, and the wall of the pool of Shalah at the king's garden, as far as the steps that descend from the city of David. After him, Nehemiah, the son of Azbuk, official of half the district of Beth Zer, made repairs as far as a point opposite the tombs of David, and as far as the artificial pool in the house of the mighty men. Okay, good, you're still sitting here. I had a fear I would look up and it would be just me. And the Lord, obviously. But mainly just me. After him, the Levites carried out repairs under Rehum, the son of Bani. Next to him, Hashabiah, the official of half the district of Kelai, carried out repairs for his district. After him, their brothers carried out repairs under Baveh, the son of Hinnadad, official of the other half of the district of Kaliah. Next to him, Ezer, the son of Yeshua, the official of Mizpah, repaired another section in front of the ascent of the armory at the angle. After him, Baruch, the son of Zebiah, zealously repaired another section from the angle to the doorway of the house of Eliashib, the high priest. After him, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, the son of Hakaz, repaired another section from the doorway of Eliashib's house, even as far as the end of his house. After him, the priests, the men of the valley, 
carried out repairs. After them, Benjamin and Hashub carried out repairs in front of their house. After them, Azariah, the son of Maasiah, son of Ananiah, carried out repairs beside his house. After him, Benui, the son of Hinnadad, repaired another section from the house of Azariah as far as the angle and as far as the corner. Palal, the son of Uzay, made repairs in front of the angle and the tower projecting from the upper house of the king, which is by the court of the guard. After him, Padiah, the son of Parosh, made repairs. The temple servants living in Ophel made repairs as far as the front of the water gate toward the east and the projecting tower. After them, the Tekoites repaired another section in front of the great projecting tower and as far as the wall of Ophel. Above the horse gate, the priests carried out repairs, each in front of his house. After them, Zadok, the son of Emir, carried out repairs in front of his house. And after him, Shemaiah, the son of Shechaniah, the keeper of the east gate, carried out repairs. After him, Hananiah, the son of Shelemiah, and Hanun, the sixth son of Zalaph, repaired another section. After him, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, carried out repairs in front of his own quarters. After him, Malkiah, one of the goldsmiths, carried out repairs as far as the house of the temple servants and of the merchants, in front of the inspection gate and as far as the upper room of the corner. Between the upper room of the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants carried out repairs. This is the word of the Lord. And it's kind of boring. Let's just be honest. You can laugh about that. You're not going to get smoked by the Lord because you think this is a little boring. It's okay. You could hear and read this entire chapter and maybe think, listen, preacher, I believe what 2 Timothy 3 says, that all Scripture is inspired by God and beneficial for teaching, rebuke, correction, training for righteousness. So that every man and woman may be fully capable, equipped for every good work. But I think the Lord may have uh, skipped over this chapter. I think it's all profitable. I just don't know if it's profitable for me. What are you actually supposed to learn from 32 verses of, well, so-and-so built this part of the wall, and then next to him, oh, so-and-so did the same exact thing. What is there for you to hear in that? But I have to be honest, in truth, we could end right here and I could pray and us have communion and that would be enough because the word of the Lord has been spoken in the gathering of the people. But I got you so we can talk a minute so you don't walk out going, so what, what was this about? Why did I come today? What's found in this chapter is actually one of the most detailed descriptions of the city of Jerusalem. So for Bible nerds like me, that's kind of cool because they really don't know what the city looked like it's not like the modern city today if you were to go. A lot of it has been lost because it's hundreds of feet below what actually stands today. And so all the architects and all the archaeological people that love to read this and just get really hype about it just like you do watching Auburn play, they feel the same way. And you're like, there's no way. They get hype about it, but it's lost. And so they love reading things like this. 32 verses about rebuilding the walls of a city. Uh, yeah, count me in as who cares. You could have said it in one verse and then we could go to chapter 4 and be moving along in the story. So why does it matter? It matters because repetition reveals a plan. 
And I want to highlight a few things today that Nehemiah really wants us to understand as we're progressing through the story. And the first thing is that right there. First highlight, Nehemiah had a plan. I got a little fearful, if I'm being honest with you. The first time in six weeks I've had this feeling where I thought, they're going to hate this, and I'm never going to be able to come back in the room again. Like my performance kicked in where I thought, no, this is not going to be what I want it to be, and it's going to be terrible. And I really feared that. And then I had a former student of mine come see me this week, and he's in a new city looking for a new church. And he's gone to a lot of places and, you know, a lot of good things about every church he's gone to. And he said, but, you know, I've, I've come to this one church, and what I really just value is that they take time to not just, like, give a bunch of opinions about the Word of God, but to really just study the Word of God. And he said, and, and I'm noticing there's a lot of repetition as I've even studied in the gospel of Jesus. He said, but what I've realized is that repetition reveals purpose. Jesus said things a lot of times because he really needed people to get it. And I thought, my guy, you in here ministering to me and I'm supposed to be doing that for you. Like, look at how that works. That repetition reveals purpose. And I think Nehemiah is doing the same thing. Because as a governor, as an appointed governor and leader of the people, he had to walk in and lead and oversee. And that meant that he needed a plan. This is instruction of the plan being lived out. We missed the conversation where he said, this is how it's going to go. But we see that a plan had been given to the people. He called them together. He didn't hire other people or use slaves. He used God's people to fulfill the plan of God. His plan was organized too. And, and I'll be the first to tell you that the word organization in a church setting can be kind of like a curse word. Some of you have been to the organized church and you felt like it was too much. It was too rigid. You got hurt by that. I understand. And yet, organization and the kingdom of God really does matter if it's done well. And some of y'all little free spirits in here, not pointing any fingers, 18 to 22-year-olds. You're going, hey, man, don't, don't put all that on me. Freedom of Christ, you know what I'm saying? Like, don't, don't give me rules. There are requirements in the kingdom of God. There are things that are asked of you, so don't fear structure. This chapter reveals that it's actually everything but bad. Nehemiah was able to orchestrate all of these people in an entire city to come together in one place. You need a leader like this. Proverbs 29, 18 says, where there's no vision, the people perish. I like the NLT's translation of that. When people do not accept divine guidance, they run wild. Y'all are like, ooh, that's me. I'll be running crazy without the word of the Lord. Nehemiah had a plan with a purpose. But who exactly was going to be used in the plan? Because you may sit here today and look around and think, yeah, 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 I think that a lot of the people I'm next to, they're meant to be a part of this plan, but I just don't really know if I'm a part of that plan. So I'm going to read three verses out of all of this. What if I was like, we're going to reread it again so you see it. All right, there you go. You're trekking with me. Verse 8 says this, Next to him, Uziel, the son of Harhiah, of the goldsmiths, made repairs. And next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers, made repairs. And they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. And then in verse 18, we're told, After him, their brothers carried out repairs under Bave, the son of Hinnadab, official of the other half of the district of Kaliah. And then in verse 22, it says, After him, the priests, the men of the valley, carried out repairs. Second highlight out of all of these verses is that Nehemiah's plan involved everybody. 
Everybody was involved. No matter what their nine to five job was, they had a part to play. These verses alone explain that a multitude of people are being used to rebuild the city walls. No matter your profession, whether you're a priest or a person of power, six times in this chapter it says that a leader of a district or a town was rebuilding the walls. Three times it mentions that priests, men that that was not their job, they honestly probably could have said, nope, you all can do that. We'll be here to intercede on your behalf for the Lord. You're going to need it. They could have. And then three other times, we see various professions that should not have been bricklayers doing that. It's like Mother Goose up in here. Rub, dub, tub. Three men in a tub. And who are they? The butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker? Come on. The gold dealer and perfume maker suddenly become bricklayers. What is happening? Nehemiah is showing us that no one person had a greater responsibility to accomplish this task. Power nor position affected the purpose and the plan for the people of God. That needs to hit you today. Power nor position affected the purpose and the plan for the people of God. It did not matter who you thought you were. It mattered what God had said about you. Everyone had a part. A few years ago, I was um, in a leadership position where I was like in charge, but not really in charge. You've been there where it's like, hey, we're going to give you a title. And you're like, yeah, I'm going to run this thing. And then they're like, well, I mean, you're still going to do what we tell you to do. But yeah, sure, you have authority. (laughs) Oh, cool. Just me. Okay, that's great. Yeah, awesome. I figured it was just me. I figured nobody could relate to that. But I read a book called How to Lead When You're Not in Charge. You should all read it. It's written by a pastor, but he kind of talks to business people and ministry people. Um, His name's Clay Scroggins, and it really talks about how do you really lead yourself and others even if you're not the top dog, which is almost everybody. Everybody answers to somebody. And you may refuse to lead even when you know what to do because it's not, quote, your job. Some of y'all are just getting into the workforce, and you're experiencing this maybe for the first time, where you read a job description and then you got to work and they start telling you to do all this stuff that you're like, I don't, did I miss that? Was it in the job description? It was. It was just in point two font that said other duties as assigned. And you're going, oh, I guess I missed that because I didn't bring a magnifying glass to the table to read the job description. And this is what it is sometimes to do things that may not be your job. Sometimes you're going to be called to do something for the greater good, and it's going to be out of your comfort zone. It's going to be out of your expertise. And yet, I'm encouraged in this text to be reminded that every one of us has a part to play in the kingdom of God. He shows us that the task is bigger than the individual. That's what's emphasized here. In the world's economy, you may actually be a person of power or high-held profession, and yet in God's economy you have a purpose that involves other people. So we know that there's a plan in place, and we know that everybody is a part of the plan, but how do they actually go about doing this task? Because, as we've read, a lot of these people, they don't know how to lay brick. They don't know what they should be doing. But we're told in Nehemiah 3, towards the end, starting in verse 26, it says, The temple servants living in Ophel made repairs as far as the front of the water gate toward the east, and the projecting tower. 
After them, the Tekoites repaired another section in front of the great projecting tower and as far as the wall of Ophel. Above the horse gate, the priests carried out repairs, each in front of his house. These verses tell us that everybody kind of had a different assignment. Some people were repairing a section of the wall. Some people, it was a big section or a small section. Some people get mentioned multiple times because they kind of did their part and then they had to come back in and maybe do something else because y'all know somebody was slacking. Some people just did what was right in front of them. Multiple other times in this chapter, we read, so-and-so built the wall right in front of their house. And you guys get it. Some people are just faster workers than other. And some of y'all are going, well, I'm just a better encourager than I am a worker. I just want to, you know, exhort and love people and really just pat them on the back and let them get after it. Come on, you know who you are. Doing great, Uriah. Benjamin, I can't even tell that this isn't your day job. That wall looks really good. So great. Yeah, after a while, they're going to hit you with one of the bricks. You might want to get to work. Some people were given different tasks, and yet what I see here is that they all did it together. They were unified in the task. Nehemiah did not say, well, some of you are going to do this. Other people don't have to. The plan was, in unity, we will complete the task that God has given us. This is what we are to do. They did it together. And this kind of reminds me of really what Paul told the Corinthians. You know, we read a few verses from 1 Corinthians every week here as we take communion. And if we were to continue on, we get to chapter 12. And as Paul talks about the various gifts that the the church has been given by the Holy Spirit, he says, you're so unique, each and every one of you in Christ, because you've been given a gift in a way that not everybody else has been given. And yet, he says, it all works together. We need each other. In unity, we see what our true purpose is. And this can be difficult. You're going to get frustrated and you're going to find it hard to be unified to another brother or sister. But always remember in those times that Jesus understands that better than we do. For three years, he walked around with the most ragtag group of people who should have never hung out together. They did not belong together. They would not have prepped the same group. Y'all are like, oh, listen, I'm living that right now. I got you, college student. He had the most far right and far left people you could get politically. Like people who thought down with the government and people who thought, no, the government is the way. They had community and fellowship together. He had people within the Jewish faith that were far right and far left. They believed that the kingdom was coming in vastly different ways. And yet, under Jesus, they were brought together to say, but together we will do the will of God. Jesus gave, a, gave people a seat at his table when nobody else would. People who should not have found community together got around the dinner table and suddenly had something in common for the first time. Let's not waste the work of Christ on our differences when the call to community is in front of us. Because greater than your differences are the community that we find in unity. To do this, you do have to release expectations of everybody else, expectations that you have on yourself. Focus on the main thing. And community is hard. Let me be the first to tell you because people are the worst. Like, we're the worst. And yet every day Jesus goes, here we go again. Y'all going to do it? Yeah. He believes in us. He believes that we can come together. He modeled that himself. 
And for a lot of you, maybe you've been coming for a long time or maybe it really is your first time or you're still looking for a church and you don't really know where to start. You don't know where to join God in his work. But today, start where you are, not where you want to be. You don't have to lead 10 different ministries. Today, the call for you is to say yes to community, to step into group life. And so today, as we're emphasizing that, that we would gather across our city in smaller groups of the body of Christ, remember what Nehemiah has said to us. First, your church has a plan for community. The call today is not for you to just go figure it out and grab a few people and Hope that it goes well. Your church has a plan, just as Nehemiah had a plan to rebuild the city. The second thing, no matter what profession you're in, how much power you have, how many people you oversee, how terrible your grades are right now, you are not grouped based on those things. And you're like, oh, praise God, because I wouldn't get to be grouped with anybody because I'm tanking, right? You are grouped based on the common factor of Christ. In community, finally, there's a common unifying purpose. Your church realizes that we're better together. You weren't meant to do this by yourself. I don't know who started that. When I was growing up, this idea that personal faith superseded the public gathering and worship of God's people, because that is not at all what I see when I read through the entirety of God's word to us. It's meant to be done together. We do this together we grow the kingdom of God as a unit and so today even as we kind of progress towards the end of our time together and we step into communion let that be at the forefront of your mind that Christ has made a way not for you to just have a great life here and a great life moving forward but Christ has made a way for you to be unified to people when before you wouldn't be and couldn't be And so in a moment, we're going to do that. We're going to take communion together as we do every week. And you may have trouble walking up here with some people because you're like, no, we got into it on the way over here in the car. I was going to hit somebody, maybe my kids, I don't know. Like, y'all know. And so it makes it difficult to come and to eat and drink and remember what Christ has done for you because you had it out this morning. And yet that's the beauty of being in the community of the church, that you can come and take communion And know that Christ has done the work for you. So in a moment, I'm going to read a few verses from 1 Corinthians where Paul just explains to us what it is to take communion. And then we're going to take a moment for you to pray and reflect, for you to maybe put some of that stuff before the Lord, for you to maybe take a second and apologize to the person next to you, right? For you to confess to them and to the Lord. And then come to the table that's been prepared for you. Eat and drink and let us worship together as the family of God and for some of you who it may be a little uncomfortable you don't want to come up here with everybody there's communion at your seat please take that if that's what you need and as always our staff is here to pray with you if that's something that you need to do more than just taking communion so if you will stand let me read the text and then I'll pray for us